I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Our sermon text for today comes from Mark chapter 9. And as you turn, you may have heard of a man named Adoniram Judson. He was born in the year 1788 in Malden, Massachusetts. He would go on to be a graduate of Brown University. And after putting his faith in Christ, in 1808, God asked Adoniram Judson to believe and to do some hard things. He called him into the Lord's service as a missionary. So upon the very founding of our country, God was calling people to leave it for the sake of the gospel in foreign lands. Judson spent five years preparing in America and then in London, England, and then on to Burma. He was the first Baptist missionary from the United States of America. He arrived in Burma in the year 1813. He studied, he struggled, he prayed, he made relationships in a land where there was almost no European or American contact. For six years he labored and no one had come to faith in Jesus. Historians note that the Judsons were frequently acquainted with sickness, suffering, and death. Nancy, his wife, spent nearly two years in America convalescing, only to discover that her and her husband were somewhat of celebrities there. Shortly after she returned to the field, war broke out between England and Burma. In 1824, the Burmese emperor imprisoned nearly all Western men as presumed spies of the British government, even missionaries. And so this included Adoniram, who spent 19 months in two different prisons, including one that was overseen by convicted murderers who had been spared death in exchange for serving as prison guards. Many prisoners died during that time, but Nancy's devotion to her husband kept him alive. She pestered, begged, bribed so that she could provide food for her imprisoned husband. She even managed to give Adoniram his personal pillow into which was sewn his translation of the Burmese Bible. All the while, Nancy was nursing an infant and raising two orphaned Burmese girls. Judson was eventually released from prison so that he could serve as a translator for the peace negotiations between Burma and England. But the end of the war wasn't the end of his suffering. Nancy died just two years later in 1826, followed by the two-year-old infant Maria Judson just six months later. In fact, Judson's wife and all of their children died in his first 14 years as a missionary. And as you might imagine, he became despondent. He questioned, did he carry death with him like a contagion? He was asked to do and to believe hard things. Did God really call him to this work after all? Or was it a delusion? Was God really going to save the people of Burma? And would he use Adoniram to do it? 
You see, when our expectations don't align with what is really happening, despair can often set in. That might be the case for you. It's certainly the case for Jesus' disciples. These disciples were reeling. Things were not going according to their plan. But then, in the midst of tremendous despair, God showed them a tremendous reality. He showed them that this Jesus that they were following was worth walking through the depths of suffering so that they too might achieve the greatness of his glory. And that's where we pick it up in Mark chapter 9. So I want to ask you to follow with me as I read, starting in verse 2. This is what it says. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one of what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning this rising from the dead, what it might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And, that, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. These disciples were reeling. Jesus had just told them the way that the things were going to go and it was like a bomb dropped and completely obliterated their expectations of what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. In the previous chapter, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's not what they expected of the Messiah. 
In their minds, the chosen Savior of God, the long-foretold anointed one, was a Messiah who was supposed to be strong, not weak. He was supposed to be powerful, not persecuted. He was supposed to rule, not to be ruled. And he was supposed to be victorious, not to be defeated. And just as he told them that he was marching toward his very own death, things didn't line up with all of that power and authority that he had already displayed. And so their expectations were shattered. But it got even worse. Because these disciples had already experienced some level of ridicule from the devout Jews and the religious elite and maybe even some of their families. But it was going to get a lot worse. And Jesus told them in Mark 8, 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They'd left their jobs. They've left their families all behind to follow him. But shockingly, he told them that he would be taken down and even worse, that they would go down with him. He would suffer and to be one of his followers meant that they would necessarily suffer as well. And this is not what they expected. In fact, it's probably not what you expected if you put your faith in Jesus. It doesn't sound like what you signed up for. And you can imagine that in the darkness of night, staring up at the ceiling, the despair sets in as they thought to themselves, what have I done in following this Jesus. And knowing that might be their reaction, Jesus recognized that his disciples needed some encouragement. And so, as chapter 9 tells us, he takes three of his disciples, the three that he had the most intimate relationship with, on a hike up Mount Hermon. Luke 9.28 tells us that he took them away to pray. Mount Hermon is the largest mountain in Palestine with an elevation of over 9,000 feet. To give you some context, for a frame of reference, there are no mountains in the eastern United States with an elevation that high. If you need to find a mountain of an elevation of 9,000 feet or higher, you need to head west. Head west to the Rockies. There's some mountain ranges in Oregon and Washington to find one. The hike up the mountain would take them nearly an entire day. And you can only imagine what the disciples talked about, either among themselves or with Jesus, as they went. I mean, perhaps their confusion and despair of what he had just told them resulted in silence as they walked. Or maybe they questioned him the whole way. And in either instance, 
what would happen next would completely change their perspective in the transfiguration. And that's an important just side note to consider. In a miracle like the transfiguration of Jesus, the question certainly must be asked, who was the transfiguration for? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't for him. It wasn't for Jesus. It was actually for them. It was to show them the glory that was his, even though he would suffer. And that's the type of encouragement that they needed. It's sometimes the type of encouragement that you and I need. Life's hard. It's difficult. Is all of this actually worth it? And God is so gracious to encourage us when we need it. I think of the wonderful urban legend that is often told about Poland's famous concert pianist, Ignacy Paderewski. A mother had taken her small child to a concert by Paderewski to expose him to the talent of the great pianist. She had hoped to encourage him with his piano lessons, which had just begun, but as is often the case with young boys, those lessons were struggling to continue. And so they arrived early to the concert and were seated near the front and standing alone on the stage was a marvelous Steinway grand piano. And as they waited for the concert to begin, the mother entered into an animated conversation with the people around her. And weary of waiting, her son squirmed constantly in his seat until eventually he slipped out of it. He made his way backstage, and the boy found himself strangely drawn to the beautiful instrument that was sitting before him. Eventually, eight o'clock came. The lights began to dim, and everyone turned their attention to the stage and the grand piano. And the mother looked up and was suddenly horrified as her son was sitting at the piano and banging out with one little finger Twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> oh no, she thought. How am I going to get him down? And she began to make her way to the platform when the great pianist Paderewski himself appeared on the stage. And he went over and he sat down beside the boy and then he whispered into the child's ear, Don't quit, keep playing. And as the little boy continued to play, Paderewski reached down with his left hand and began to fill in the bass part. And then, reaching his arm around the little boy, he added a running obbligato. And together, the old master and the young novice held the crowd mesmerized. You know, as God's children, there are many times when we feel like we're spending our days just pecking out meaningless, inconsequential little tunes, thinking maybe that as we do, our gifts maybe aren't big enough to be used for something significant by God, especially when our expectations for how life is going are not met 
or when there's suffering and difficulty along the way. And yet God is so gracious to encourage us in the ways that we need it and at the times that we need it. He's the one who comes along beside and says, don't quit. Keep playing. And then with the subtle guidance and able assistance, we suddenly find ourselves making beautiful music both with and for God and enriching the lives of ourselves and others as we glorify him. The disciples needed encouragement in the worst way. And God had just come along beside them to say, don't quit. After the long journey up the mountain, Luke tells us that Peter, James, and John needed to sleep. And as they awoke, it says in verse 2, that he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You ever wake up sometimes and, and feel groggy as you're entering back into reality and you, you can't really tell if you're awake or if you're dreaming. Your vision is blurred a little bit and those sounds that you're hearing in your head, you're wondering, is that what was happening in my dream or is that what was happening in real life? And as you begin to come to, you begin to perceive what the reality is around you. I feel like that happens to me almost every day. I can only imagine what it must have been like for the first of the three disciples to wake up and see the radiance of Jesus intensely as his white clothing shone with a light shining forth that must have pierced through the grogginess of his eyes. And immediately as he shook himself back into a wakeful state. He grabbed hold of the men beside him to wake them up as well so that they too could behold the glory of the Lord. The description is so brief, it's tempting to look past it, but don't do it. The word transfigured is the Greek word for metamorphosis. It means to be changed. It's used only four times in the Bible, and every time it denotes a radical type of transformation. And so Jesus was changed before their very eyes. Now that begs a whole slew of other questions. If Jesus is God and God never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then what's actually happening here? And it's important to note that the change that Jesus underwent in their midst was a change simply of his physical appearance or physical nature. I mean, he's already displayed that he's fully God again and again and again and again through his many words and many actions in the first eight chapters of Mark. His Godness did not change. But the physical appearance of his glory did change. But for a few moments. 
Here it was like the veil was being pulled back and the disciples were able to see the appearance of this God-man that would come more in line with his nature. Now when you are in the depths of despair and when you're questioning everything you've just committed yourself to, like the disciples had, for these disciples, this would be exactly the encouragement that they needed. Jesus really is God. He really is glorious. He really is perfect. He really is pure. He really is powerful. He really is eternal. And when you see him for who he really is, when you see and behold his glory, you are willing to trust him even to the point of suffering with him and for him. And as they look, they see Moses and Elijah speaking with him together. And the imagery now becomes incredibly rich and profound as the whole plan of God is seeing to come to fruition in unity. Because both Moses and Elijah had spoken with God on the mountain. Moses and Exodus 33 on Mount Sinai, Elijah, Mount Horeb, and 1 Kings 19. Both Moses and Elijah had seen glimpses of God's glory. Both had miraculous departures from earth. Both Moses and Elijah are representative of the Old Testament. Moses represents the giving of the Old Testament law. Elijah represents the tradition of the prophets. And so the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament is personified in these two men. And wow, what it must have been like to hear the conversation that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were having. Well, we do get a glimpse into the broad topic at hand. Because Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31 says, Behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What does the eternal Son of God the lawgiver of the Old Testament and the heir of the prophetic tradition or the, the founder of the prophetic tradition, what do those three talk about while being glorified on top of the mountain? They talk about death, resurrection, and ascension. They spoke about the very suffering that Jesus had just told his disciples about and caused them such great discouragement. They talked about the fulfillment of the mission of the Messiah. And in this way, they spoke about how his mission fulfilled the Old Testament, all of it, of which Moses and Elijah represented. In fact, Peter would later testify to this very thing. In Acts chapter 10, 43, he stood in front of the synagogue and he said, to him, meaning Jesus, all the prophets bear witness 
that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And Jesus himself would testify to this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so the three disciples witness the glory of Jesus. It emboldens their faith through the encouragement that it gives. They bask in that glory for but just a moment. And in fear, Peter opens his mouth. He offers to make tents for Elijah and Moses and Jesus to stay. Now whether Peter was just grasping for something to contribute or whether the glory was so great that he never wanted it to end. He wanted to remain in the presence of this glory forever. He didn't want to go back down the mountain to suffering. We don't really know. (laughs) Perhaps it's a bit of both. But as he spoke, God the Father made himself known It says that he descended as a cloud just as he had led Israel through the wilderness to the promised land as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night just as he had descended as a cloud to meet Moses on Mount Sinai just as he filled the tent of meeting with a cloud just as he would later fill Solomon's temple with a cloud. God was there. And says in verse 7 that the cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. God publicly affirmed the ministry of Jesus pointing to his divinity three times. He did it at his baptism. He did it here at the transfiguration. And he did it, though not audibly, but physically at his crucifixion. And this is just what those disciples needed the most. Because they were in the depths of doubt and despair and confusion. And God reminds them that Jesus really is his son. And the cloud dissipated. And the father and Elijah and Moses disappeared. And it says they no longer saw anyone with them but only Jesus. Only Jesus. And Jesus was enough. How are they going to make it through? The days that were ahead, how would they make it through the suffering that would be coming upon them? Well, God encouraged them. He peeled back the veil for just a few moments, showed them glory. He gave them a glimpse of eternity. He encouraged them. But he also commanded them. It was so quick that you might be tempted to skim past it, but He commanded them, this is my beloved son, and here's the command, listen to him. Listen to him. 
Listen to him. How would you make it through the suffering for the gospel that is going to come to you? Listen to him. And this is the command for me, and it's the command for you, just as much as it is the command for the disciples back then. Because life is hard. You know this. Following the Lord Jesus can be hard. It's not always hard, but it can be very hard sometimes. Yes, God blesses you when you follow him. Yes, there's great joy that comes to you when you serve the Lord Jesus. Yes, your purpose for life is made clear when you know the Lord. Yes, your soul has hope and security and a future when you follow Jesus. But it doesn't always feel that way. And sometimes you might be tempted to wonder, as the disciples wondered, is this worth it? This is harder than I thought it was going to be. Does God see my pain? Did he hear my prayers? I don't know if I'm going to make it through this suffering. Is glory something that is still for me? Those are the questions that people ask all the time. But friends, Let the Lord encourage you because listening to the words of Jesus enables you to follow him through suffering all the way to glory. It's getting increasingly hard to be a Christian who's faithful in this society It is still easier than other places, some other places in the world, but it's not surprising to you whether it's the Christian lifestyle choices or the rejection of a Christian worldview or a mockery of the authority of the word of God or the dismissal of morality in the political realm. You've heard me say it before, but none of this is a surprise For the first 240 years of our nation's existence, there was positive reinforcement and positive pressure to follow the Lord and at least acknowledge the things of the Lord. But all of that has changed in the last eight years. We've come over the precipice. And for the first time in the history of America, the trend and negative pressure toward following the Lord is real and it's felt and you are living in it. Things are changing and it's hard And it's probably going to get harder. How are you going to make it through? How do you make it through difficulty and suffering? How do you make it all the way to glory? You listen to the words of Jesus. Listening to the words of Jesus enables you to follow him even through suffering all the way to glory. Listen to him when he says, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to him when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, or I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Listen to him as he instructs a new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen to him as he reminds us, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Listen to him as he invites you into forgiveness, as he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And listen to him as he boldly proclaims, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. And listen to him as the truth should compel you to suffer with him as he says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? Listening to the words of Jesus enables you to follow him even through suffering all the way to glory. And as the disciples head back down the mountain with Jesus, they had been told that they were following a suffering Messiah, that they would see his death that would pay the ultimate penalty for sin for anyone who would have faith in him, even to criminals, even to religious leaders, even to themselves, even to you. And they also learned that in following him that they too would suffer. Up the mountain they were encouraged. They saw the divinity of Jesus and they heard the command of God to listen to him. And now the mountaintop experience was coming to an end. Going back down the mountain, it says in verse 11, they asked him why the scribes say that Elijah must come first. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it is written. The Messiah would suffer. John the Baptist was the example of his followers. He was the new Elijah and he suffered and now they too will suffer. Down the mountain, suffering. Top of the mountain, glory. Coming back down the mountain, back down to suffering. But listening to the words of Jesus enables you to follow him all the way through suffering to glory. You know, suffering comes in a variety of ways, doesn't it? Sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes it's frustration. Sometimes it's in the waiting. 
This is the history of those who follow Jesus, and it's your history as well. In fact, in the early Western missionary movement, whether it was William Carey to India or Hudson Taylor to China or Adoniram Judson to Burma, Adoniram Judson, after preparing for five years and having six years of work and praying and translating the Bible and being imprisoned for 19 months in two separate prisons and losing eventually his wife and all of his children, in 1819, he baptized his first convert to Christianity. Six years of work for one person. By 12 years, there were 18 believers in Jesus there. And when Judson began his mission in Burma, he had a goal of translating the Bible and founding a church of 100 members before he died. But when he died, he left the Bible, 100 churches, and 8,000 Christians. How did he do that? How did he make it through all of the pain, all of the difficulty, all of the suffering to get to glory? How can you do that? Listen. Listening to the words of Jesus enables you to follow him. Through suffering, even the suffering you might be going through right now, all the way to glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the encouragement that we need when we need it. Help us, we pray. Encourage us all the more, we pray. Give us resolve to suffer with grace, with grace we pray. And may we too enjoy the glory that comes.